The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. This is Joe Schuldenrein. Welcome to another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Um, one of the interesting aspects of the emergence and evolution of archaeology in North America certainly over the course of the 20th century and actually to some degree even here in the 21st century is the fact that archaeology embeds itself very often in programs that are related to the economic situation of the times. Uh, development projects are very tightly correlated with archaeology because of the law and because of statutes, but a lot of people, I think, especially in the general public, less so in the archaeological community, are not aware that some of the major methodological and research inroads were made in our field during the period of the Great Depression and in sp specifically over the course of the uh, Roosevelt administration that went from 1932 to uh, 1945. Um, while we have a variety of different uh, historic documents referring to these events, and we have clearly a very, very major record of what happened over the course of the Depression and the archaeology that emerged. Uh, Dr. Bernard Means, who is today's guest, has recently undertaken a very exhaustive and comprehensive study of the archaeology of the Depression. Uh, if you may recall, Dr. Means was here on a previous episode in which we talked about virtual archaeology. Today's discussion is completely different. And let me just give you a little bit of background on uh, Dr. Means. He uh, has a PhD in anthropology from Arizona State University, and his dis dissertation research involved um, applying new theories and technologies to American Indian village sites from southwestern Pennsylvania. Many of those, of course, were excavated during the 1930s by New Deal archaeologists. 
Dr. Means' scholarly pursuits include reconstruction of American Indian village life from uh, cross-cultural studies of spatial and social organization, and the research of uh, potential of archaeological collections and the history of archaeology across the Americas. Um, Dr. Means is a contributor to the volume Shovel-Ready Archaeology in Roosevelt's New Deal for America, uh, issued in 2013, and has written numerous articles on the prehistoric Monongahela tradition and new, new, uh, new Deal archaeology. He currently teaches archaeology at the School of World Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University and is the director of the Virtual Curation Laboratory creating three-dimensional digital models of archaeological objects. It's my pleasure to welcome to the program Dr. Bernard Means. Bernard, uh, thank you for appearing. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. So let's get into it. I mean, I think as the show goes along and proceeds, we'll be discussing the vast scope of archaeological research and investigation that occurred over the course of the Great Depression and the New Deal. Why don't you tell us how you got into it and what your uh, perspectives on New Deal archaeology were going into the type of research that you actually ended up conducting? Uh, well, I think like with a lot of uh, uh, Americans, I was not remotely aware that archaeology was done during the Great Depression, uh, even, though, even though I'd been a practicing archaeologist for a number of years. Um, I got involved uh, doing background research for a uh, modern project, a highway construction project around the town of Myersdale in Somerset uh, County, Pennsylvania. Uh, so a cultural resource management project. And one of the things uh, that we do when we have that kind of project is we do research to make sure that we're aware of the kinds of archaeological sites that we might encounter uh, uh, um, as we're surveying and trying to determine uh, how much archaeology is going to need to be done for the highway project. And so I had done research. I had looked at the Pennsylvania's list of archaeological sites that are mapped in that region. And the highway was going to run through a, a known archaeological site. And so I went ahead and, and looked at the records on that. And there's actually a site that had been published in, in, in a 1938 uh, issue of Pennsylvania Archaeologists. And, and like the articles back then, the, just a couple of pages were written about the site. Not enough to let us know how much work they had done, uh, but enough to let us know that it was a significant site. And so one of the questions that, that we had was, uh, well, the site's been excavated in the 1930s. How much archaeology did they do? Um, whatever they did, we would not have to do in the 1990s when this project was going on. And so I went into the archives, and I looked for every sort of scrap of information I could find, and I found a, a little sort of unpublished version of the, of the published article, and it had some photographs in it and some sort of hand drawings of, of artifacts, the, sort of, the kind of thing you make by laying an artifact on a piece of paper and then tracing around it. Right. Um, which is literally the only record we have of the artifacts from the 1930s from that site, is one page of the sort of hand-traced uh, um, artifact drawing. And one of the things um, that I found associated with those documents were a number of photographs um, taken during, during uh, 1938, June of 1938. And we actually went back and tried to reconstruct those photographs from the same, same angles to estimate how much work they had done. And uh, we did determine... Uh, that they had not completely excavated uh, the site, that we would have to do more work. Uh, more to the point, the uh, uh, unpublished manuscript actually had the mention of a second site that was not listed in the official uh, state uh, Pennsylvania state site files, 
And that one, we did the same thing. We had a handful of photographs, and, and we determined that more of that site had not been excavated uh, in the 1930s. And so we actually had to do uh, uh, significant archaeology at that site that had otherwise would have been destroyed during highway construction um, and found artifacts going back over 10,000 years uh, in stratified context. So the archival research really sort of protected um, that archaeological or, or made that archaeological data available. Um, and then as part of the research for this project as well, I looked at all of the American Indian village sites that uh, were known in the area. And every one of them, with the exception of one site, had been excavated in, in the 1930s. All were excavated as New Deal programs. And we really needed to understand uh, um, those village sites in order to understand the village sites we knew we were going to encounter on our, our 1990s uh, project. Um, and so that really, that's really sort of the, the rock shelter site was the segue into, into uh, getting into and studying those village sites. And then um, personally, I, came, I became interested in trying to understand the people uh, behind those excavations. And getting into that uh, is actually very, very intriguing. First of all, um, Monongahela, for those of, of the uh, listeners who, who are not familiar with that term, is a phase, a very significant late prehistoric phase in uh, western Pennsylvania and eastern Ohio. And uh, my question to you was, is actually over the course of those excavations, uh, insofar as you looked at them as background, did you, uh, did you get the impression that they were being dug with the knowledge in mind that these were, in fact, a specific focus, a specific time frame, and a specific cultural tradition? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I will say that when the excavations began, uh, the general motivation, well, the general motivation for the excavations, uh, and we'll get to this later, is employing people. And digging up village sites helped with that because you'd find a lot of stuff. But the sort of the scientific motivation was to show that, um, that there was a substantial American Indian presence in that part of Pennsylvania. A lot right. of scholars had argued that there was not any significant American Indian uh, presence because we didn't have any historic records of them. And locals had cut running across things when they were plowing their fields, and there were some collectors finding stuff. So they went in, they specifically went looking for proof of village occupations. Um, the Monongahela tradition itself was defined based on the New Deal excavations. So it was the New Deal excavations that led to the definition of the Monongahela. So um, that basically is a very major uh, research uh, result of those uh, excavations to identify a complete tradition. Yeah, and, and, and that tradition uh, guides all uh, late prehistoric research in, in Pennsylvania to this very day. So Right, right, um, yeah. the, the term was actually, or the, the concept was coined by a woman named Mary Butler, who was the assistant state archaeologist at the time, and uh, she actually gave a paper on it in 1936, and 1936 is when that sort of concept was announced to the world, and then it was later published in a book in 1939. Uh-huh. So take us back then into the uh, design and the development of New Deal archaeology, how it worked. Was it part of the WPA? Was it part of the CCC? Um, maybe get back up a little bit and talk about the acronyms that uh, the Roosevelt people used when they uh, were initiating work, work programs. Sure. Um, so basically in 1932, when uh, um, FDR was running for uh, president, he accepted the Democratic nomination. Uh, one of the things that he argued for 
were the creation of uh, uh, job work relief programs. And he referred to these as New Deal programs, a New Deal for the American people, which is where we get the term from. And he had done things like this while he was governor of New York in his own state, and he wanted to do mm-hmm. this on a national level. And you, you have to sort of know what the way people were being helped at the time to sort of understand the significance of these programs. Um, people, generally speaking, weren't actually being helped by the government. Uh, you had to rely on private charities and, uh, and, and the sort of the whims of the private charities. And the private charities themselves were struggling. Uh, if you did get money from the government, it was sort of like the way we sort of uh, think about welfare. You were handed money, and then you lived off of that, but you didn't do anything for it. And the Roosevelt administration very, very clearly, uh, explicitly said, look, people want to work and they want to do things. And so we're going to give them money and we're going to give them to do things. And so that's why it's called work relief. You're not getting direct relief. You're getting work out of it. And they wanted to make sure that the country would benefit from these projects. And so the New Deal programs were designed to help build up the infrastructure of the country and do things that were not normally done by business. So they didn't want the government to be competing with businesses. And so they were building things like roads. Um, they built zoos. Uh, they drained uh, ditches that were full of malaria. They inoculated people. They did themed plays, all kinds of things that benefit people. Um, the, the first major program and, and the most popular program uh, was one called the Civilian Conservation Corps, or the CCC. Right. And it started right. in April 1933, and it went to July 1942. And Roosevelt really felt that uh, being outside and communing with nature helped restore a person's soul. And so he had the Civilian Conservation Corps go out and uh, clean up forests and replant trees. They were called Roosevelt's Tree Army, uh, build campgrounds, um, things like that. And they did archaeology as well. Um, uh, very soon, actually, uh, people were doing archaeology as part of these sort of outdoor programs, building museums and things like that, and, and doing excavations. Uh, the earliest CCC excavation was actually in Nevada um, prior to the construction of, of what was then called Boulder Dam, later called Hoover Dam. Um, so that was one of the programs. Um, but that was only for young men. Um, uh, so basically 17 to, to 22 uh, were the ages that you could be in the CCC, uh, with exceptions for American Indians. You could be any age if you're an American Indian and World War I veterans. Um, let me uh, let me let us take a break here for a minute sure, and sure. Uh, we'll get back with Dr. Bernard Means in our discussion on the very fascinating work of the New Deal as a baseline for doing significant archaeology during the period of the Great Depression in the United States. We'll be back after these words. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Do you ever just ask why? If others, especially children, ask you the same question, how do you answer? Is life a whole bunch of questions just waiting for the right answer? When you tune in to The Mickey Ellison Show, you'll find out how to find the answers and open up so many more questions as you do. At what point in our lives did we stop answering the why questions and just settle for whatever answer we've been programmed to settle for? Never stop asking why. 
Join Mickey Ellison every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We are back in this uh, very special episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We are discussing the emergence of archaeological programs during the period of the Great Depression and specifically over the course of the uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt administration between 1932 and 1945. Uh, Bernard, why don't you talk a little bit, I mean, well, as, as we're talking, uh-huh. we're, we're establishing sort of the variety of, of government programs that were initiated and the acronyms and, and, and the various sub programs, if you will, that that were used for infrastructure development. Was there a central focus for archaeological recovery programs? Was there an individual who was in charge of their administration and the the deployment, say, of archaeological teams? What is the background to the specific archaeological works that were going on over the course of the New Deal? Uh, Sure, that's a very good question. Uh, There was no central authority governing New Deal archaeology. Um, there were attempts to create a central authority uh, by the National Park Service and the Smithsonian Institution, but they were not successful in that uh, attempt to create a central authority. Um, archaeology as part of the New Deal began very early in March, uh, um, in, in early 1933, under something referred to as the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, which was around for a couple of years uh, before it was replaced by the WPA. Um, and basically, um, some folks down in Marksville, Louisiana, were putting in a swimming pool, and they were going to put the swimming pool where an American Indian mound was. Mm-hmm. And so Smithsonian archaeologist uh, by the name of Frank Setzler said, you know what, let's try to do archaeology, and we'll see how it works. And that was basically, that was sort of the impetus. Hey, can we employ a lot of people who know nothing about archaeology to dig up this mound, uh, recover information in a, in a scientific fashion, that we could later do research on. And so they went and they excavated out that mound to put in the swimming pool. And so that actually is, and, and based on that, they go, yes, we can do archaeology with people who are not very well trained. Um, and we can rely on just, a, at that time, there were very, very few uh, archaeologists of any kind in the U.S. Um, coming out of the schools. It was sort of just really beginning at that time. Um, and they said, yes, we can do that. And very quickly, archaeologists 
um, around the country looked at that project, and they said, we can do the same thing. In fact, uh, there's a group called the Eastern States Archaeological Federation, uh, which was founded in the early 1930s, and they had a meeting, and the major topic of that meeting after the Marksville Mound excavation was, okay, how do we do this ourselves? Particularly in uh, New Jersey and Pennsylvania were the two big states in the Northeast that got involved in right. archaeology. Now, Marksville is a well-known site in North American prehistory, and certainly Louisiana is one of the centers of mound-building cultures. Where was uh, our knowledge of Marksville using it as a baseline prior to the New Deal excavations, and what, uh, to what degree did, did the uh, New Deal excavation enrich our knowledge of Marksville and the, uh, the cultures of the Louisiana mound people? There was very, very little known prior to the, to the Great Depression. In general, throughout the southeastern United States, actually, the southeastern United States, including Louisiana, was considered sort of a backwater. Uh, there were a few people that were sort of interested, and they would go down during the summer months or, or maybe during the winter months, and they would take their boat, and they'd go along the coast, or they'd go up the streams, and they would sort of document things, and they would do the occasional excavation. But there was nobody really systematically doing archaeology uh, pretty much anywhere in the southeastern U.S., until the New Deal. So the knowledge base was very limited uh, uh, in, in, in that region, uh, specifically, um, but certainly compared to most of the rest of the United States. So, and how, were, how was this excavation undertaken? What was the technology? How are folks mobilized? And you say it was uh, run uh, by the Smithsonian Institution. How, how do, do you know anything about how that particular excavation was run and set up? No, I, uh, not and not in, in great detail, but I do know that over a hundred uh, men worked on the project, and the emphasis was on on basically hand labor, because the idea was um, you wanted to minimize how much your equipment costs, so you didn't really use heavy machinery on a lot of these projects. You wanted to keep people busy, um, so everything was basically a lot of it was done with shovels and trowels and pickaxes and, and wheelbarrows. Uh, basically, to to sort of move the dirt and 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 there'd be you know a, a handful of people running around, uh, making sure that everybody was doing things right and taking you know photographs and then making drawings. Uh, none of the workers themselves were really expected to make any sort of contribution to the research aspect of things. That was meant to be done by the uh, the supervisors uh, on the projects. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is you know, not atypical. So. And not not much different as, than it is today, really. No, I mean, no, no. And in fact, and, it's sort yeah, of a model ahead. for today. What did it sort of set a lot of the parameters for how archaeology is done today? It did because you needed to make sure that as as the New Deal uh, archaeology quickly developed, you needed to make sure that you could guide the worker. So. You got people who didn't really, who may have heard of archaeology, uh, but likely probably did not. Um, and so people began to create forms that had places for people to put information to make sure they didn't miss anything. Um, and you also couldn't necessarily depend on having a trained crew. And you know, you always get somebody you know, like today if you are working on a project, you you get one or two people that are excellent, stellar. You want to keep them around. Right. During, the, during the New Deal archaeology projects, you couldn't do that. Um, one, people were supposed to actually try to find another job. And the better the person you had, the more likely it is they, they'd be able to find another job. They would move job. on, yeah, yeah. of course. Um, and and you, you could only work uh, X number of hours. You, you did not work full-time doing uh, New Deal or any 
uh, New Deal archaeology or any New Deal project. And then the New Deal archaeology was uh, when you moved to a different location, when you were finished with one location, you were supposed to hire a local crew every time. Right. So you would always have new workers coming through for one reason or another. And so having these, these forms and, and coming up with standard procedures um, and, and writing those down and, and really helped uh, um, make sure that we have records today that we can, we can still look at and still right. and do research right. on. And I think that you know those of us who, who have been around, and I'm talking about my generation who are uh, basically uh, sort of easing into retirement age, to put it very mildly, um, those of us who started in the late 60s, if we compare the strategies and excavation protocols that we followed back then, and if you even look at the larger scale WPA, uh, CCC, uh, New Deal archaeology programs, you'll see a very repetitive uh, protocol and procedure. I mean, they're basically doing very similar things to what was being done in the 60s. Now, things have changed a lot since then, but certainly um, those of us who sort of came, came of age uh, in the 60s and 70s uh, see not that much difference in uh, the way we were doing things then and the way they were being depicted in some of the photographs of the New Deal. Well, and, and, and the, those archaeologists of the 1960s, a lot of them learned how to do archaeology running. These I was going to say, yeah, the, yeah. The super, certainly the supervisory folks and the folks who went on to become directors of major projects. And I think it was very widely, uh, a very wide sort of continuity or extensive, uh, extensive continuation of a tradition in the Southeast and the Midwest uh, with special reference to the Mississippian cultures and the mound-building cultures where the sites are big, spectacular, and produce very, very colorful and, and, and wide-ranging artifact distributions and, and village locations. And so that the protocols, I guess, really sort of uh, continued for a good couple of decades, I guess. They did. And, and, and one of the things that, you know, like those archaeology projects in the 1960s, um, the people that were running them, um, and this is in, in the 1960s, archaeology really started, started becoming a profession in ways that it was not before, where you actually That's right. you know, yeah. you did it as a job as opposed to as, as purely as an academic thing. Right. Um, those archaeologists um, learned lessons, and they wanted to make sure that the lessons they learned about how to run a project, how not to run a project, uh, were carried forth right. um, So uh, into the 1960s. And so you see sort of a major continuity here. Where were the major projects? I assume they were in the southeast. I mean, uh, the literature is replete with documentation of large WPA projects for there in the Midwest. Uh, how about the southwest? Um, you know, that's a really interesting question because when you, when you read the uh, prior to the, the Shovel Ready book that came out, there were two books published on New Deal archaeology, uh, both in 1996. And both of them focused on the southeastern United States. And you sort of get the impression that that's where most of the New Deal archaeology was done. And, and that's actually not the case. Um, there are, New Deal archaeology was done in three quarters of the states uh, around the country, um, including, uh, um, I mentioned uh, uh, Pennsylvania and, and uh, um, New Jersey. New Jersey, uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, and New Jersey, all, all but one county had archaeology done in it. Yeah, uh, those were the Dorothy Cross excavations. Dorothy Cross was, yeah, Dorothy Cross was in charge of the New Jersey excavations. Right, right. Um, and then, uh, and there were other people as well. There's actually a chapter on the New Jersey excavations in that 
uh, shovel-ready book by a guy uh, um, who's at the New Jersey State Museum by the name of Greg Latanzi. Uh, right. Out, outside of the Southeast and outside of Pennsylvania and uh, um, New Jersey, uh, you did have major excavations in, in, in large parts of Texas. Uh, you had some excavations in Oklahoma. You had a fair number of uh, excavations throughout Arizona, um, less in New Mexico, but those included some at uh, Chaco Canyon. Um, and um, in some places where you really didn't see much, like Nevada only had one sort of early project. And for me, it's a very surprisingly, California uh, had a very limited amount of archaeology that was done. Um, um, and part of that had to do with uh, not so much where archaeology needed to be done, but whether or not there was somebody motivated to, to try to navigate <laughs> their way through the bureaucracy and get the money. So you had sure. to find somebody who was going to sponsor your project. Uh, you had to have somebody who was sort of knowledgeable about the area, and they needed to be able to, to, to work their way through the bureaucracy. And, and not everybody was willing to do it. Uh, um, there's a, a well-known uh, archaeologist who worked in Kansas during the Great Depression, Walt, uh, Walt, Waldo Weddle. I can't remember his name. Um, but he did a lot of archaeology in Kansas, and he was a Smithsonian archaeologist, and he had done New Deal archaeology uh, to the north in Nebraska. Um, he, re- he, he did not pick up any New Deal funding in Kansas, and it would have been available to him if he wanted it. Um, so, so it sort of depended on a really much, a lot on personal motivation. Uh, it's and really we'll, the people that made New Deal archaeology. Right. And we'll be back with uh, Dr. Bernard Means and continue our fascinating discussion on the archaeology of the New Deal uh, between 1932 and 1945 after these words. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris. Real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. In today's society, there is just too much competition. Women are taking on the same roles as men. They're working side by side, competing for the same positions. What is happening? This is transferring to how men and women feel about each other and relationships. We're delaying marriages or not even getting married at all. It's time to go back to basics. Listen for this groundbreaking show with host Naftali Schwartz. But it's not really that groundbreaking. It's just a new way of looking at things. Tune in Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening. 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. And this is Joe Schuldenrein, and we are back with a special segment of uh, Indiana Jones Myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology with my special guest, Dr. Bernard Means. And uh, Bernard, let's talk about the sort of broader, farther-reaching elements of New Deal archaeology, how it fits into the archaeological history of the North American continent and, and where it stands in terms of motivating certain types of research and uh, certain ways of practicing archaeology. Uh, was it related to the uh, evolution of SHPO offices, to the infrastructure of the archaeological profession, as you, if you will, and, and how do we uh, look at the link between the New Deal and the emergence of contemporary archaeology in this part of the world. Uh, yeah, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a good uh, perspective. Um, New Deal archaeology, it's often some people sort of think it's just sort of a historical curiosity. It happened and it's done and we've moved on. Um, but many of the ways that we practice archaeology today uh, were things that were established during the New Deal. So they still affect the way we do things and they affect even things on an organizational level. So for example, um, the Society for American Archaeologists is, uh, is one of the largest organizations of archaeologists in the country, and it was founded in, in 1935, in part because you had a lot of people do, suddenly doing archaeology all over this country, and they needed to talk to each other. And so the SAA was sort of a, a clearinghouse for, originally for those individuals. And it was a very different world in the 1930s for archaeology. Prior to the 1930s, there wasn't a lot of archaeology done in North America. People did some work in the Southwest. Um, and people did some work in the, in the Southeast. Here and there, there were, there were a few projects. People did work in New York and Ohio. But the, the attention and, and sort of the funding and the, the focus of the museums were in the Middle East, or they were in, in Central America amongst the Maya, sure. or they were in South America. And so there really wasn't, if you, if you really were interested in North American archaeology, you didn't really have a way of getting a lot of funding for it. And so suddenly you had uh, people recognizing the diversity of the resources of this country, and not just sites associated with the American Indians that were here before the Europeans came, but also sites associated with the Europeans and, the, and, and sites associated with, with the, you know, the enslaved uh, people brought over from Africa. And sure. that actually uh, sparked the development of a focus on historical archaeology in, in this country. So the, the SHA was founded in part because of work being done at places like Jamestown. Um, and so there's that aspect, and then there's sort of theoretical things that archaeologists sort of get interested in, and how do we talk about artifacts and, and, and sites over space and over time, and that really sort of developed during uh, the 1930s. Um, we're still affected today, in part, again, because some of those people were trained that came out of this, um, but our knowledge of the areas that formed the basis for doing archaeology in the 1960s and the 1970s, this is the base knowledge for most places was developed because of these New Deal programs. Um, and the people that uh, um, sort, of, sort of formed this, this space knowledge um, recognized that 
archaeology was sort of done on a scale that, that probably they weren't, were rarely going to be able to do themselves. Um, and so people, particularly in the last uh, couple of decades, um, have really begun to refocus back on those excavations uh, and recognize the vast quantity of material that was uncovered um, that can, can affect the way we think about research today. Um, so, for example, I'm interested in the Monongahela culture, which was, as we talked about earlier, defined as part of, of the Great Depression. Uh, but I'm also interested in how people organize themselves and, and when they live in villages. Uh, what does it mean to live in a village that has sort of a, a, sort of a circular uh, plan or circular pattern? Uh, what can this tell us about people's beliefs and, and behaviors and, and things along those lines? Um, I, if, I'm, if I'm digging a Monongahela village today, um, I usually only have enough money and time to dig up like a couple of houses and the layout of a village. Um, they dug up the whole village. Right, and, right, of course. Yeah, and people dug up entire mounds. And so, they, and so the, in many ways, the data is sort of coarser than what we would, we would get today. But having that broad exposure, seeing an entire site and site after site after site, um, really allows you to, to think about things on a scale that, it, that it, it's almost impossible to do today. I, I think uh, you're really right about that. Uh, it does, in fact, coarsen a lot because there is today uh, a mentality that I think is, is, is sort of a, a function of the uh, development of archaeological theory, if you will, in which uh, it, 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 it's almost sort of a mandatory obligation to maximize your data yield from whatever uh, shovelful or spoonful of dirt you get, you're maximizing the yield. Of course, back then, the potential and the yield was not as well known, so you're getting broader perspective and you're getting some answers to critical questions like, for example, settlement geography, the distribution of particular polities across various parts of the country and how extensive they were, whereas today you're just sort of refining your data sets, looking at household configurations internally rather than, than the broader spatial perspective on or what the, the sets of houses meant and what the broader geography is. So it, it's, it clearly developed baseline information from which some of these refined uh, protocols developed, wouldn't you say? Oh, definitely. And and one of the things that we also, you know, one of the issues, and I think part of the reason why some people sort of forgot about these excavations um, and and ha and haven't had the impact that they they really need to have, is that back then, you know, money was for paid for um, paying people to do work on a gross scale. Uh, money was not necessarily available for people to write detailed reports. And so even if people had the sort of uh, ability and, and, uh, to do that, they often didn't have the time. Um, so there's so that issue. So there's all this data that's out there, and some of it's right. really quite good data uh, that just is sitting, and, and, um, sitting in museums and sitting in boxes, and in some cases sitting in people's attics or in like, sure. historical society attics, um, that's out there that can be looked at. The other thing that, and it's sort of true for archaeology in general, is we're always coming up with new ways of looking at things. So we're always coming up with new questions. And so even if archaeology has already been done, uh, we can sort of revisit sites. Uh, many of these sites have a, a tremendous amount of data that we're simply not going to be able to gather today that we right. can still use in resources. So, uh, for example, all of those villages that were excavated in the 1930s in southwestern Pennsylvania, um, none of them were radiocarbon dated. Uh, because radiocarbon dating did not exist. Right, of course. Um, yeah. But they did collect uh, organic material. 
And so I actually got some funding uh, as part of my uh, dissertation research from the National Science Foundation, and I got uh, 44 radiocarbon dates from a dozen villages excavated in the 1930s. And Amazing. This, this radically rewrote how we think about that area. Um, we were wrong about what we thought about that area. Um, and so we're using old data, but using new technologies. Yeah, and I think that's one of the mentalities that has really sort of taken focus and flourished over the past as people are realizing that our methodological tools are going to be progressively more refined as we go on. And so we're sort of saving the past for the future, not just in terms of preserving monuments, but preserving research uh, potential for future archaeologists, because we know that 10 years down the road, they're going to probably be able to extract 20, 30, 40 percent more information from an excavation that we leave intact. Yeah, and, and you know, some of these areas um, that were actually during the Great Depression, it doesn't matter how good your techniques are today, you can't get to them. Like uh, things in the Tennessee Valley, um, a lot of archaeology was done in the Tennessee Valley, uh, in, in uh, Kentucky, in Tennessee, of course, a little bit in Georgia, um, and, 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 and other states, because they were building big dams uh, to, to generate hydroelectric power. And so people went in and they excavated as many archaeological sites as they could, and they recovered that information. And some of that is in a museum in Tennessee, ready and available for research. Some of it's in Kentucky. Um, and you can't go and do more excavations at those sites. They're underwater. Right, um, so, right. So if you really want to understand um, you know, the American Indian and even in historic occupations of those areas, uh, the New Deal data is what you have. That's true. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, one of the, one of the, uh, again, you, you can certainly uh, help me out here with the chronology of these major projects, but you think of the WPA and the New Deal excavation, and then, of course, the river basin surveys were the next major thrust in, in large-scale archaeological uh, projects, surveys, and excavations. What is the relationship between the river basin surveys and the New Deal? Did they come at the end, or did they represent a new phase? Um, they represented a, a new phase. There was actually uh, a discontinuity in, in, in between the New Deal and the River Basin, right? Uh, which was which was caused by World War II. Uh, uh, um, basically, um, as we got into the uh, early nineteen late nineteen thirties, early nineteen forties, uh, it was very clear to uh, the Roosevelt administration, even though it was not necessarily clear to everybody else, that we were going to be fighting a major war in Europe. Uh, nobody at that time really was concerned about um, uh, Asia. And so the programs began to be directed towards preparing for war. Uh, so even the WPA programs that had previously funded archaeology and the CCC programs that had previously funded archaeology, the money basically dried up for the most part in the early 1940s, even before the programs ended. Right. And so there was a lot less archaeology that was done. And a lot of the archaeologists, the people who were running the projects, um, were of the age that they knew they were going to be drafted uh, and, 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 you know, be sent off uh, uh, for war. Um, so, um, so, the, so, there, so there's things sort of, you know, sort of, uh, sort of hit a break. And then after the war, um, uh, first starting with uh, Eisenhower, people really began to say, well, look, we need to, you know, invest uh, some additional uh, into our infrastructure. Um, we saw how the Tennessee Valley Authority projects worked out and the Grand Coulee Dam up in Washington State and, 
and the Bonneville Dam on the Washington-Oregon border. Those states, those were all uh, heavily invested with uh, doing archaeology um, to some extent or another. And so as they were proposing to do these major projects, particularly in, uh, throughout the country, but particularly in the Midwest, to build these large dams to control navigation and do hydroelectric power, um, the people who had learned how to do the TVA archaeology, they were like, okay, um, we're going to make sure we do things, you know, right, and 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 um, and we're going to learn our lessons. But the other major difference, though, was now you had uh, because of federal legislation, you had private archaeology companies developing, um, and and you did not have that during the depression. Archaeology was not a business, um, and, and so that really affected things. And we will come back with our final segment on the New Deal and the archaeological programs of the Great Depression, 1932 to 1945, and what they meant for contemporary archaeological projects after these words. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com It's time to take a new look at some of life's changing moments. It's time to listen to an expert who has been there and can provide insight through experience, studies, and enlightening guests. Tune in to Illuminating Now, Lindsay's Life Secrets. Host Lindsay Levinson takes a look at relationships, parenting, health and wellness, divorce, depression, sexuality, philanthropy, and mental health. You'll look at everything you know in a different way. Illuminating Now, Lindsay's Life Secrets, airs Wednesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Carla Howell, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein with my special guest, Dr. Bernard Means, and we are talking about 
the archaeology of the New Deal, what it meant in terms of research potential and research guidelines, and its overall implications for the way archaeology is pres is practiced in the twenty in the late twentieth century and beyond into uh, contemporary times. Bernard, I think one of the uh, one of the uh, major lessons I think that even those of us who uh, who grew up in in the later twentieth century in terms of maturation of our archaeological knowledge and profession is that those large scale projects basically provided a tremendous amount of centrality and a major threat of, uh, for methodological advance and development. And they certainly led to, as we had talked about, the river basin surveys. And in, in my era, in the late 70s and early 80s, the, the Great Dam projects, the Russell Reservoir projects, the Tentom uh, down in, in, in the southeast, and uh, those massive hydropower projects uh, across the northern tier of the country country and out west. Why don't you comment a little bit on how that manifestation and what the effects of that are going forward? Well, in, in many ways, you have uh, some of the same sort of issues that you had with uh, um, the New Deal uh, projects, the river basin projects. Uh, a tremendous amount of data being gathered, um, and the archaeologists that are, are running those projects um, are able to sort of basically do sort of... Uh, the nuts and bolts of what those projects are about and why, you know, they look at sites, they determine whether they're significant or not and whether they're able to do more work. Uh, but because those projects are so large and such large scope that they, they can't do the, 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 the archaeological record justice. And so we're generating uh, archaeological collections on a scale in some ways comparable to those that you got during the Great Depression uh, with a more sort of refined uh, methodology, things we learned uh, during the Depression, during the River Basin surveys, things that we learned from practicing archaeology as a profession. Um, but those research and records are going to have a tremendous amount of research potential for people in the future as well. So we're, we're basically adding to the New Deal archaeological record. And some of those damn projects, the ones that were, that were done in, in uh, Washington, for example, um, are the first time people have done major archaeology since the Great Depression. And so you have these sort of sort of curious, a lot of archaeology and then sort of no archaeology and then a lot of archaeology. Right. Uh, and, and, and trying to build on the earlier records and sort of, and sort of link these, I think, is, is one of the major things that we're going to be doing in the future. And, and we're probably not going to see as many of these large projects in the future as well. We're going to see more smaller scale projects. Well, I think that's important. I think it's really important to emphasize this because one of the, and we've talked about this previously, is that one of the major contributions of those very large-scale projects is sort of a very, a, the picture that one forms of regional archaeology, settlement geography, settlement patterning, uh, subsistence patterns that one can project over later prehistory in, in particular, and understanding preservation potential in these very large-scale operations, I think the dam, the dam projects and the river basin projects, again, gave you that very large-scale organizational framework for practicing archaeology 
are we going to see that again? We saw that a little bit, I, I would argue, uh, back in 2008 and 2009 with, uh, with the Obama programs, the rehabilitation programs. Uh, again, very similar conditions, a depressed economy, uh, arguably uh, on a scale approaching what happened in the Great Depression. And a lot of archaeology was meted out specifically by the Corps of Engineers between, say, 2008 and 2011. But are we going to see this again? Well, that's actually, that's an interesting point, because that's actually one of the questions people ask me. Have we seen it? Have we seen something like the New Deal since? And as you mentioned, the Obama programs, the, uh, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, um, did have funding for archaeology. Um, the, one of the big differences was, of course, that the archaeologists were now uh, part of a business as opposed to not being a business. Of course. Um, the closest program that came out of that, um, that's sort of like the New Deal, was the Veterans Curation Project, uh, where they um, have returning veterans help re- rehabilitate old collections. Um, right now, um, because of the existing environmental regulations, if we, if we ever do start doing uh, massive infrastructure building, we will see a lot of archaeology. And there's certainly uh, uh, an awareness that our infrastructure in this country is, is deficient. So I think the, uh, I think it's the American Society of Engineers to sort of rate us as a, at a D presently. Yes, and, um, and that's true. And those, if that, a, lot of, so a lot of that infrastructure was actually built as part of the Great Depression. And so um, we could see that. We could see a large pro- program. The big difference would be that the people doing most of the work would probably actually be professional archaeologists rather than people who, you know, were coal miners or, or farmers or worked on, on the railroad. They're going to, people, they're going to be the generation that, had, that has learned specifically how to be an archaeologist to run these projects. Um, so I think we'll see more archaeology, but not the same kind of archaeology. Right, and as we were discussing that, I was thinking that the next wave, I think, in large-scale archaeology is probably going to be funneled through the development of uh, gas distribution lines through the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, because there is a lot of oil and gas development all over the country right now as they prepare to actually uh, think about uh, the export of natural gas across other parts of the world, and there is already in place a series of programs for uh, doing large-scale archaeology in a linear fashion, which is, uh, I guess, something that did start in the late 80s and early 90s as, as pipelines became sort of an organizational thematic focus, if you will, for doing large-scale archaeology. And that's going to be manned, as you say, by, um, by professionals. Yeah, and exactly. And, and, uh, um, and I've actually done some of those pipeline projects myself. Um, and that's sort of a different sort of challenging way to do archaeology because you're, you're doing archaeology where the pipeline needs to go, not necessarily where you would like to do archaeology. And in some ways, that's kind of like the, the New Deal. You did archaeology where people needed work, not necessarily where you would do archaeology. Yeah, and, and by, by uh, transportation needs, infrastructure needs, you're doing the archaeology where the road is running through. But the great thing about that, and it certainly was true for the Depression, um, but it's also true for like the highway projects I've been on, because you do archaeology where you wouldn't normally do it, you find things you wouldn't expect to find. And so you get that discovery. You go, oh, wow, I wouldn't have even thought people would have been trying to live there or, or would have been trying to right. grow plants there or you know, uh, uh, you know, bury their dead there or something. You know? so, you, so you learn these sort of really interesting things that really contribute to the picture. Even if you're doing a highway 
pipeline that might be 10 feet wide, you know, for 80 miles or something. Yeah, and you can never tell because those, uh, at this point, with our awareness of where sites really are or, can, uh, or a heightened awareness of, of what the sensitivity is of particular areas across the terrain is, then you can anticipate much better and you can actually uh, figure out what the prospects are of finding sites along a particular reach of line or a particular reach of highway. Say, for example, when it's crossing into a river, into a river drainage, or into an alluvial valley, and then you know, uh, okay, all bets are off. We have to be very vigilant over here. So there are guidelines here. Um, in closing, Bernard, where uh, where do you see, in a nutshell, the contribution of the New Deal in uh, for the future in terms of archaeological directions? I think the contribution of the New Deal archaeology is the fact that. It's really going to help continue. It's going to continue to rewrite our understanding of the past of this country because we have so many new ways of looking at things from the past, and they did such extensive, tremendous work. Um, and, and we need to remember that you know we can go back to those earlier excavations. They're they're not just dusty records and black and white photos, um, but there's real information there that will will be added to what we're doing now. Um, and, and I think that's really the direction for, for New Deal archaeology is, is more and more people uh, who will find it, it's expensive to do archaeology. It's less expensive to go into the archives and do research, especially if you're a student. Um, and that information is there and it's available and, and, and people are willing to work with you in these, in these museums to, to get it to you and, 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 and you can make a major contribution to, to our understanding of the past. I, th- I really think that's the direction, sort of this collections-based uh, research and, and new technology. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap it up. I want to express my special thanks to Dr. Bernard Means for uh, taking the time to speak with us on the archaeology of the New Deal, and uh, we will be back next week with another episode. Until then, stay well and preserve the past for the future. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth reality, and 21st century archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.